This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. Fundies called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Steve Johnson, thanks very much for making your talk your book debut. I thought before we get into your stock picks today, if you could start by telling us a little bit about Forager Funds Management and how you guys look to invest. Great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me on and, and well done on such a, a great product. I think it's a awesome world that we live in where people have access to things like this, uh, either very low or no cost. So well done. Uh, yeah, I started Forager Funds Management back in 2009. We were originally part of the Intelligent Investor newsletter, which a lot of people might be familiar with. And I started a small funds management business actually underneath that umbrella to invest in the, the small to mid cap end of the market. Uh, you know, we had six to 10,000 subscribers back then and telling 10,000 people to buy a $20 million company had a fairly predictable impact on its price. So we started the funds management business to participate in that small cap end of the market. Uh, we're valuation-based people. It's become a, a dirty word value, but we've always been able to incorporate growth into our valuations of businesses, but we're trying to buy them for substantial discounts to their fair value. And we've done that in our Aussie fund for 11 years now. And we've been running an international fund since 2013, which has been performing really, really well as well. Uh, with the same principles, obviously a, a much bigger world out there, which causes some, some complications, but also opportunities to do the same thing on a much bigger scale. So yeah, it's been 11 years for us. You know, we raised 10 million bucks back in 2009 and today the business is 450 million. Wow. So the funds have had to evolve as their size has grown and we've been very deliberately capacity constrained as well. I think size is the number one killer in, in funds management and we've closed that Australian fund. It's now listed on the stock market. So people can buy and sell units to and from each other, but we're not raising any more money there. And really importantly for our strategy, we don't have to deal with redemptions either. So when we go through market turmoil like March last year, we're out there investing every single cent that we've got in that fund and not worrying about people taking their money out. So we've worked really hard to try and align that philosophy, the client base and the vehicle itself so that they're all pointed in the same direction and all able to take advantage of of dysfunctional markets, which is really where we come into our own. You've got two stocks you want to talk through today. What stock did you want to talk about first? Well, we'll start with our one of our largest uh, holdings in our fund, which is RPM Global, a mining software company. I think that's probably as good a place to start as any. Yeah, so providing software to the mining industry. Talk me through their business model and, and perhaps how that's evolved and is evolving currently. Yeah, I'd say the business model is the opportunity. I think whenever someone comes to me internally with an idea, all good ideas have pretty much got the same structure. Here's what the market price assumes today. Here's why I think those assumptions are wrong. And here's how much money we're going to make if I'm right and the market is wrong. And, and I think all of the work we do is to try and firm up that thesis, but the thesis should be pretty simple on day one. And if you look at the historical revenue number here for RPM Global, you'd see a business that from 2015, 2016 through to 2019, the top line revenue number wasn't showing any growth at all. And especially in the software space, people would look at that and say, well, why do I want to own a software business that's not profitable and not growing? And the change here was really a change in their business model from selling lifetime software to selling subscription-based software. 
So if we run, it's quite high valued stuff. Like they'll sell, this is $300,000 a seat software that they're selling to a mining company. And that mining company is using the software usually on mine specific applications. So mapping out where they're going to dig next, uh, grading all of the, the monitoring that goes on in a, in a mining company, these guys are providing the software that does that. So, you know, historically they might've said to a potential client, you pay us a million dollars upfront and then pay us 250 grand a year to maintain the software for you. And four to five years ago, that business model changed from pay us a million dollars upfront plus the, the service fee to pay us 500 grand every year. And that's all we want from you. And like a lot of other software companies, as we do that, we'll move the product into the cloud. But the, the change for these guys meant that they were booking in that first year of, of the old way they were selling the product, they booked $1.2 million of, of revenue. Under this model, they get more revenue over the life, but they're only booking 500 grand in that first year. So you went through this massive transition period where the business was still growing, the number of clients was growing, but the way that they were selling the product had changed and it looked like at a top line, the business wasn't growing. So a lot of people had just ignored it. It sort of languished at the same share price around 40 to 50 cents for a number of years. And then as those numbers have started to come through and started to become more obvious to people, you've seen the share price start to move on the back of that. Uh, you know, when we just run a fairly simple valuation model for the business, we're getting numbers of 250 and $3 a share in a base case and, and potentially more if, uh, if some strategic options play out for the company down the track. And what is the current share price, just for the viewer? Dollar uh, forty as of as of this morning. Yeah. And you mentioned there their annual recurring revenue growth, which is starting to look quite quite strong. Maybe walk us through what some of that growth's been in the last six to twelve months. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, for someone new that comes to the company, they report this total contract value number as well, which. I think when they first made this transition, they were trying to say to people, well, if we measured this the same way we used to measure it, here's what the number would be. So you'll see in most of their announcements, they announce a, a TCV, which is total contract value over the life. But the annual recurring revenue is really the number that you, you want to look closely at. And it was pretty close to zero three years ago, ended last financial year at 10 they're currently at $19 million of annual recurring revenue. And at the rate they're selling software, that 10 to 15 of additional annual recurring revenue every year is what we would expect them to keep adding. And I think the really important thing to understand for this business is the cost base is set up to sell that amount of software every year. It's not going to grow. So each 10 million of incremental annual recurring revenue, the vast majority of that is going to flow through to the bottom line. So if you look at a business that last year sort of broke even, this year might make seven or eight million dollars of, of cash flow. Each ten million of incremental recurring revenue is going to flow through in, in profit. So, you know, our model here is that this grows to, to thirty million of of EBITDA pretty quickly over the next few years, and that's going to make the current. You know, it's a market capitalization around a couple of hundred million dollars. So, it's going to start look, looking very cheap, even on traditional metrics for a software company. And they've been highly acquisitive with plenty of cash and a balance. I think they've got around 40 million bucks with no debt. Are there new opportunities that they'll continue to roll up and, and, and buy and, and roll into this business? Or do you think they're done with the buying spree for the time being? Look, I think so. I think the, the logic behind a larger company being able to defray some of the overheads uh, and do acquisitions here is pretty compelling. So in a lot of ways, just buying a young company's software where they've done all of the work and plugging it into your distribution network 
it makes a lot of sense. So I think you'll see more there. None of it's massive. You know, they're yeah. typically four, five, six million dollar acquisitions that are nice additions to their product set rather than company transformational. I think the company itself is a target. Uh, it makes sense to me long term. You got the, the guy who's running the business here, Richard Matthews. He ran Mincom here in Australia. Sold that business, east of global. He sold the most of that business at the end as well. So his his track record here is: I come in, I fix it, I grow it, and I sell it. And my my um, ball case here is that this business does get taken over. It just makes a huge amount of sense that you know, you've got four or five million bucks of overheads in this business every year. That if you're a corporate acquirer, you're just going to take that straight out. So you can add 50 to $100 million to your valuation there just by not having those corporate overheads. So I think the end game is that they get bought by one of the large global players in this space or potentially even an SAP. So a lot of their software plugs into um, a core Rio management system like an SAP, so it might be a logical target for them. But between now and then, the more they can add to the value stack here, the, the more it's going to be worth do you think it's more logical that a, another software provider would buy them and not a Wally Parsons or a more traditional type mining services business? Look, I think both are possible. Yeah, I think if you're in the if you're in the particularly the the EPC side of things, I think having the software that's going to allow the person to manage the mine um, is is useful. I think the mining services providers. The value here, your market share is going to be much larger in terms of software than you're ever going to be in terms of being a mining services provider. And I think you want to be able to sell to the, the BHPs and Rios of the world that are doing it in-house. So, you know, I think to the extent of McMahon or a Parenti or someone ended up owning this software, I think it would be worth a lot less than it is in the hands of a, of a software provider. And yeah, it's probably more someone who's already selling a lot of software to those big mining players that sees this as a really nice addition to their, their offering. And they cover software from mining exploration to, to mine closure. Where do they have the strongest correlation to in that, in that spectrum? It's operational mines. So yeah. usually the, the, most of the exploration work has been done and the holes have been dug and we're ready to start digging. And you'll usually, as a client, make a life of mine decision about what software you're going to use for that. So, so still sensitive to commodity prices, but yeah. not as sensitive as particularly if it was exploration-based yeah. software. Is that fair? Far more sensitive to production levels, but there's 25 to 30% of the business here that is selling software to coal production exposed clients so when we run through the risks on our side of the thesis i think that coal exposure is a pretty meaningful one to be thinking about i don't see it evaporating overnight but you know, you've got parts of the business here that are growing really nicely and that's probably a bit that's not going to to grow over time i think interestingly in the software space as industries come under pressure you often get people thinking more about where the efficiency gains are going to come from. And sometimes it's actually easier to sell software to someone that's going through a difficult period than it is to someone who's making extraordinarily high profits at any point in time. And I think you know, with, we're seeing a lot of evidence of wage inflation out there. And I think for someone that's selling software that hopefully reduces the amount of labour that you need to run your mine, it's, it's quite appealing to try and sell people some of these transformational um, technology tools in, in difficult periods. So it's not something that I sit there and lose sleep about overnight, but I think that in commodity exposure is an important thing for people to think about. You know, we've just been through a period where they're 
there's been very little new mines built over the last couple of years and you can still see RPM's revenue marching up. So it can slow the growth. It's not something that's going to impact the business dramatically because so much of its revenue is just subscription-based for existing mines. And what's their churn rate for their customers? And do you sort of separate that between do you count churn where a mine's now closed and no longer operating different to churn where a customer said, right, we don't like your software, we're not using it anymore? Yeah, it's hard to get that split. The, yeah. the latter category is almost zero. It's something that I love about um, enterprise software in general. These businesses, they don't, you know, if you look at a, a Hanson or there's a whole bunch of them listed on the ASX here in Australia that Hanson share prices back up, but lots of them have been suffering because it's been hard to sell through COVID. They're not like consumer software where it grows virally and everyone just loves the product and you're just selling exactly the same product to everyone. There's a whole heap of work that goes into the sales process because it's a big commitment for the company on the other side. It's usually a competitive tender. And then there's a whole heap of work that goes into actually getting the software to work in the client's business. So, you know, you spend six months to a year doing a typical implementation to get this stuff up and running. So all of that makes the sales cycle more difficult, but it also makes the switching cost really, really high. You don't get people just changing their mind and saying, I want to go and use a different product because they've already sunk so much effort. It's already integrated into a whole heap of their other systems. So it's it's usually uh, your mind shuts down and the, the, the churn has historically been, you know, in that 5 to 10% range for this business and largely offset by other clients that are adding more seats. So you pay on a per user basis and if they like the product, they add different modules, they add other seats. You, you tend to get growth in revenue per customer once you've got your foot in the front door as well. Right. Well, we'll get on to the next company in, in a minute, but I, I guess in summarising, it almost looks like you've got the... Um, the value created from a tech business, which is by nature a really nice business, you know, fixed cops, fixed costs with variable revenue, hopefully growing revenue. But you're also those businesses have generally in club around the head a bit of like as as there's been a move from value to, to growth and, and probably a move towards real assets as well. But you're getting a bit of a hedge there due to the link with the the mining exposure there that it'll potentially move through that process a lot smoother than maybe some of the higher valued tech players. Is that how you're viewing it a little bit? Yeah, and this stock is still trading at close to its highs at the, the moment, and we still think there's a lot of upside. So it, it certainly, the share price didn't perform like a lot of those tech companies throughout 2020. It was a fairly weak year for it in terms of signing new deals. And we own Finios as well in our, in our uh, fund, which is a larger um, insurance technology business that's had a sort of similar uh, run over the past 12 months where it, it came off a lot earlier than the other tech stocks, but you haven't seen the same pullback recently. And I think a big part of that is just much more reasonable pricing as well, right? You've got some of these tech companies coming from 20 times revenue down to 10 and people starting to get excited about it. Whereas we're talking about a business here that was two and a half times revenue, not 20 times revenue. So I think the valuation underpinning is pretty strong. Birdie, mate. And what about the second business you want to talk us through today? Yeah, that was uh, iSelect, which... We are a substantial shareholder in and have been for a number of years. I think we've got a, a common connection there and, and someone that we know that's been involved in the business. And look, I'd say this is a fairly typical, um, traditional, deep value type stock for us and probably a good example, I think, of, of some of the businesses out there where, you know, we're not 
we're not seeing huge amounts of growth ahead for the business, but we are seeing, them, seeing the market dramatically underprice what we think the value of the company is. The challenge with all of these growth companies is getting that, sorry, that all of these deep value companies is actually extracting the value out of it. You know, I think if you own a growing company and they're reinvesting their profits and they're growing the business over time, you really don't care how long it takes for the market to recognise the value that's there because that, that compounding is just working in your favour. I think iSelect is a good example, I think, of a deep value stock. There's a lot of value there, which we'll talk about in a moment, but it's been um, it's been a long time coming in terms of shareholders being able to realise the benefit of that. It very, very much feels like a, a potential turnaround play. Maybe for the viewers that aren't familiar with the iSelect business, talk us through what they are, what they look to do. So it's a comparison website is the, the simple way of describing it. And their largest vertical within that comparison business is uh, health insurance. And that's where it originally started. So you go online and you say, I'm looking to change health funds or I want to buy health insurance. There's two big players in the for-profit uh, comparison website player. You'll often end up at Compare the Market. People are probably familiar with the Meerkats or you'll end up at iSelect. Uh, and you know, historically they have compared insurance products and then when that they'll do the end sale for the customer and they get paid a commission by the insurance company provider to um, for that, that customer, a portion of which comes up front and a portion of which is what's called a trail and comes over life. So now they do mobile plans, electricity, all sorts of different products as well, but the, the largest vertical for them is, is still health. Um, it was a really, really good business in the early 2010s and it was highly profitable. And I have seen um, a lot of this in the online space where they had a really successful business effectively buying traffic from Google. Someone's searching for health insurance, they buy that traffic and they can convert it at a margin that made a lot of economic sense for them. So it was basically an AdWord arbitrage business in a lot of ways. And I have seen this across multiple, multiple, multiple businesses. The long run outcome of any AdWord arbitrage business is Google ends up rich mm. and the market effectively ends up paying the market price for the AdWords because compare the market sits there and says, well, this person's worth 50 bucks, I'll pay 30. And Iselect says, I'll pay 35. And then before you know it, you're at 50 and, and nobody's making any money. And if you look across... Uh, the history of this business, it, it's its efficiency around that marketing spend has got lower and lower and lower from year to year. What you've ended up with as an investor in it, though, is this massive book of um, cash flows that are still due from insurance companies and due from products that have sold in the past. And I think a bit of a turnaround on the core business where they've been able to cut some costs and, and make it profitable up front. But the most attractive asset for us here is the, the asset that sits on their balance sheet, which is a, a receivable due from insurance companies. And we're at a bit of an inflection point. Like they, they book accounting earnings here where they estimate how much commission they're going to get over the whole life. As the business was growing, those accounting earnings were much higher than the cash flow they were collecting. We're reaching an inflection point now where that back book is generating cash flows that will probably be more than the accounting profits that it makes over the next few years. So shareholders are going to start to see that cash flow. They've just announced a, a special dividend and a dividend policy that they're going to pay out in future years. So there's a bit of a turnaround underway, but the main asset here is sitting on the balance sheet. And maybe talk us through those numbers. What's their EBIT multiple? Because like you mentioned, it does look pretty cheap, particularly for a, 
a business like this and, and they're obviously paying a dividend. So maybe talk us through what the numbers look like and maybe where you think they could get to. Yeah, so the the asset that's on the balance sheet here and we would look at them separately. So you've got a business here that's capable of writing new business and its profitability has varied a lot from $5 million to $20 million on an annual basis over the past 10 years and it's been quite volatile. So it's hard to put a number and a multiple on that, but you'd want to be conservative and say, you know, let's pick something at the low end and say eight to 10 here and maybe a low multiple of that. So six to seven, if I was just valuing the business and say, okay, this ongoing business here, $60 million at the low end and maybe a hundred to a bit more at the top end. And then you've got a, a loan book here yeah, that we think is probably worth 50 to 60 cents a share versus a current share price of, of dramatically less than that. I think it's 35 as of this morning. So let's be more conservative about that and say you've got 45 cents of loan book. You've maybe got 30 cents here of, of ongoing business profitability. We'd look at it and say 70 to 75 cents of value. Uh, the dividend they've declared, they're talking about a couple of cents a year. So you're still only a 5% yield at the moment, but that should grow over time to something more substantial. The big value creation opportunity here is, I mentioned the main competitor, Compare the Market. The owner of that company has actually crept up the Isolate share register. They got to 20. They've kept creeping every opportunity they could. They're over 30% now, and they've recently, from the ACCC, been given the green light to go even further. They got another um, 6%, didn't they? Is that right? They haven't bought that 6%, but the ACCC has said we're okay with you buying another 6%. Isn't it usually 3% a year? Is that over? That's right. So they can't do it. Yeah, the ACCC okay. has said we've given you the tick. We're not going to pull this up for competition reasons, but they, they can only do it 3% in six months. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I think it was a trial for if we took this business over, are you going to stop it? Yeah. The, the way I read the ACCC announcement was before they went ahead and, and proposed a merger or put the businesses together, they did this little 6% test with the ACCC to say, what are you going to say? And I think the ACCC announcement was pretty clear around there are lots of other ways of people buying these products and that's why we're okaying them on the 6% you would assume the same rationale would apply to a complete takeover. So it was sort of a little, let's test the waters here so that we know if we do go ahead with the takeover, it's going to be okay with the ACCC. Will there eventually be a, a stop where the ACCC or, or ASIC will say you can't creep up any higher and, and effectively take it over without paying a premium? Or do you think they'll be allowed to keep doing 3% every six months? I don't think the ACCC cares about the market, you know, the rules of the the exchange are you can creep 3% every six months and it's not the ACCC's job to stop that. So if they would be okay with a full takeover at a appropriate premium, they will be okay with them creeping. Like it's not their job to get involved in the, the market mechanics around how they execute that takeover. Their, their issue is competition. And I would say that, who knows, they can always change their mind, but the announcement read to me like a green light around a takeover here, which means a green light around creeping as much as you want to creep. I do you think, think an extended creep is the most likely outcome or do you think they end up taking it over, getting all those efficiencies cleanly and paying some sort of premium? Look, I would have said that the, the full takeover was uh, important because the speed here, the reason that it makes so much sense is there's tens of millions of dollars of synergy benefits from putting these two businesses together. 
I said earlier, they compete like crazy over AdWords, but also just the overheads for running the business here. You've got call centers, you're managing teams, you've got whole marketing teams. There's probably, as a percentage of the market cap, the largest amount of synergies I've ever yeah. seen, largest logical reason for putting these two businesses together. So you can sit there if you compare the market and just creep 3% every six months, but you're not going to realize those benefits for quite some time. And it's going to get harder and harder for you to get stock because it gets more mm. less and less liquid. So I've thought that there was compelling logic here for a deal to happen, but it's been, you know, this has been dragging on for a couple of years now. Maybe COVID put a spanner in the works. And I think they're going to be hard-nosed corporate acquirers here. They know they already own 30%. So the potential for a competing bid is limited. I think there's a lot of negotiation that needs to happen. But also I think the business itself, and this is, we own a lot of businesses that get taken over. Historically, I'd say half of our exits have been businesses getting taken over because we buy them cheap and people see that value eventually if we get it right. But usually before you get a takeover, you need the business to start performing well. No, nobody's going to do it when it's going through a horrible point in time because the shareholders are not going to accept that low enough price and you just need a bit of momentum here. We've had that where the largest non-management shareholder in mainstream, which is a fund administration company, currently going through a big takeover. Now, that business has actually been performing quite well for a number of years, but it wasn't until they really started to grow that the urgency came about for the, the takeover. So the most important thing for me here is let's make our money out of profits and dividends and cash flows and management and the board focus on returning that capital to shareholders over time. And if we do that well, the takeover bid's going to come at an appropriate price. It seems like as good a place as anywhere to finish. So uh, a couple of really interesting stories there, Steve. And, and like I said before, really appreciate you coming on the show. Great, Chris. Appreciate it. It's been great. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Spirit Technology Solutions. If you do business, do it with Spirit. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.